Come on. So friends, this, um, this phrase that we will be a people and a church for Boulder with love is going to loom large over how we talk about ourselves and our, um, our sense of mission and vision um, here as a, um, as a church that is planted here right in the middle of this town. It, it also happens to be the name of our campaign, but we hope it um, has longer legs than that. It certainly has had longer legs already for um, our elders and other leaders as we try to understand where are we headed? Where are we headed? We will be a church and a people for Boulder with love. And that's going to unfold for the years and years and years to come. But what we said last week, and I want to sort of remind very quickly, is it means two things for us in the near term. One of those things you just heard already, and that is a capital campaign that um, we are seeking to transform our architecture so it tells the same story as our heart. So there's something about what it's like to come into this place and to participate in this community, to be welcomed here and to linger here that is reflective of what it means for us to be for Boulder um, with love. And then as we'll talk about over these next couple of weeks, as we talk about that vision in an ongoing way, um, it also will mean for us a new name and a public identity. We want to do everything we can to sweep away whatever confusion there might be now and in the years, even the decades to come, about why we're here. So uh, we've known this possibility might be coming for three or four years. And then this past June, our elders decided uh, in this really beautiful way that now was the time for us to tell our story in a clearer way. That we've had a name for 148 years. It's really good. It served us really well. And also, as our culture becomes less and less connected to Christianity, that story becomes more and more confusing. What does it mean to be first? Is there a race we should know about? What does it mean to be Presbyterian? Why would you put that in a name? How do you spell it? So I think our elders very wisely said, in light of how urgent our sense of mission and vision is, that we do everything we can to sweep away as much confusion as we possibly can from this conversation we're seeking to have with our community. So how do you do that? How do you, ch how do you choose a name of all the hundreds and millions of names that might be out there that would be suitable for a church? And I'm going to give you the math. Here's the simple equation on how you change a name. Boom. There it is. Let me see if I can explain that to you. When we announced a name change in June, we asked for uh, folks to submit names that they thought would be a good fit for us and for our future. And we took those 109 names and we whittled it down to seven with a, a team of uh, like a task force to do this work. And they gave us seven names. They gave our elders seven names. There were six names plus first press. Just as a way to check, are we still thinking the same way we were thinking way back in June? And our elders went through this series of exercises and conversations and dialogues. And we put those uh, in, in order. First press was six of seven, so you know. And then our elders said, well, this is the order, but you guys need to start over. We don't really... Like, we think we can do better. So uh, we took that advice, and we grew the team a little bit, 
And um, we, with some other advice, uh, narrowed down to just one criteria. What name best tells our story? What name's a container that helps us really tell our story? And so um, 109 of those names we felt were pretty, a pretty good place to start that conversation. So we put 50 back up. And we started having that conversation. And when we got down to about 17, we're like, okay, we've talked about sort of our sense of vision and mission and going forward with these other 37 names. We have 17 left. Now let's throw in. What have you been wanting to put in there that wasn't on there? What have you sort of creatively be wishing was true, but we just haven't had the freedom yet? And we, like 45 plus new names kind of got thrown into the lists. And then we sort of started whittling down again. And there was this moment um, when we were um, at about nine, when someone on the task force said, you know what I really wish? We were up in the, uh, the loft of the club room looking at that big TV with all these names. And I said, I really, we, someone said, we, I really wish that we could take the part of this name and the part of this name and squish them together. And can I tell you what happened next? Like literally everyone on the team grabbed cell phones and computers and pulled them open to check um, if the website was available and what social media was there and, and what churches already had that name. And, and I was watching thinking, well, this is an interesting moment. So that name became um, one of the five that uh, we whittled, when we whittled down to five. And then we, at, we sought some outside um, help and expertise to help us understand the, the upside and the downside of whatever name we might eventually choose. And then we took three and we gave them to our session. And we said, this is the second time we've given you a list of names. This is it. If it's not on here, that's fine. Your session, you're the elders, you get to decide, but it's going to be with a different team. And we had a really, a really glorious conversation. And um, our session agreed that there was one name that rose to the top. And they agreed to pray for a week about that name. And um, one of our elders wrote a set of devotions for all of us to go through that, uh, those devotions together and pray together. We fasted and prayed together um, as a body of elders on a, on a Friday and uh, then we came back together early that next week and unanimously decided that going forward, beginning on Easter Sunday, we will be Grace Commons Church. That it's a way for us to understand um, our vision. And what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is just work our way, sort of preach through each of those words. When we say grace, what do we mean? When we say commons, why is that in there? When we say church, what is that really about? It's been interesting over this last week as news has gotten out. I was, um, all week I was in Dallas at a denominational conference. You guys should all come next time. And what's been interesting as this word gets out People who are sort of in our, in our denominational tribe, the, the, the biggest reaction from them is, we love grace. What, what is, what's commons about? We get to talk a little bit about our heart, sort of extend beyond just our city block. 
But what's been even more interesting is the number of conversations that I've gotten to have with, with neighbors and people, parents who are part of our kids' schools, and they're like, why grace? Why grace? Now that's a conversation I would like to have every day of the week and maybe twice on Sundays. <laughs> so that's what we're going to talk about today. Why grace? Why have we chosen that name? So let's pray, shall we? And, and we're going to dig in. Lord, thank you for bringing these people in together to uh, be one voice of worshipers today. We thank you for keeping them safe as they work their way here in the snow. And we pray for those who are out working in that snow, shoveling or pushing it around with a pickup. We pray that you would keep them safe and alert to all that is happening around them. We pray, Lord, that you would just give us great insight today as we hear from your word. That you'd open the eyes of our heart. That you would grow our affection for you. That our love for our neighbor would expand because of what we discover about you today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. If you are our Lord, rock, and redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, so there really are three ways, or sort of like these three thought bubbles of the way the word grace is uh, used in the New Testament. There's three chunks of places where you see every single one of them, as far as I could find, fits in one of these three ways. We're going to talk about all three of them very quickly as we think about our name going forward, Grace Commons. The first way that we see grace used is simply as a greeting. Over 26 times, it's used as a greeting at the beginning of a letter or at the end as a promise of a benediction and an exhortation to live under and with God's grace. And simply, it's a way, it's a, it's a, it's a way to say hello in a much deeper way. It's an expression of, of goodwill. Something beyond simply the a dear Amy or dear Fred, that we might write in an email or in a letter. It reads like this in almost every single one of Paul's letters. This is from Ephesians chapter 1, just the first two verses. Almost every time he starts a letter like this, Paul, they sign their letters at the top. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When we take on this name, Grace Commons, what we're saying, what we're saying is the, the very first thing that we want you to know is we want to, we want to greet you with blessing. This is not just sort of like a howdy sort of a way. It's, it's us saying, we want you to know something of God's great love, even in your first interaction with us. It reminds us to extend ourselves out with God's great love, to not sort of hold it in. We want to be an extension of his blessing. That's partially the story that we want our building to tell. If you go stand in our courtyard after this and you stand there in the snow and you're feeling, wow, this is such a great moment in the snow and you, you look out, you're going to see bars. 
If you're on the outside of the bars, you're trying to look in, do you know what you see? Bars! Which, friends, is not a message of grace. It's not a message of confidence of who we believe God is to us and to our community. What we want to do is convey the simple greeting of God's goodness. The very first thing that we want people to know is that God has a blessing in mind. It's something that you can, you can only receive. You can't earn it. You can't earn it. As we'll talk later, these kinds of things are just simply grace. You didn't know, you didn't know that's, that's what you needed today? You didn't know that there was a blessing that was in store for you that you didn't have to earn? Well, guess what? Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've chosen our name to reflect that desire to simply greet people with blessing. So it's an invitation, it's a greeting, but also, secondly, grace is, is used as a word gift in the New Testament. The word for grace in Greek, the Bible, uh, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. That word for uh, grace is charis. Anybody know anyone named charis in your life? Okay. That means both grace and gift. It's what's sort of at the very heart of the way gift is translated. The word gift is uh, charismata. And a gift is something that we've been given that we sort of intend to then flow out to others. That's the way it's used when it talks about how we've been given a gift, a spiritual gift. It might be helpful to think of it as the difference between a birthday present and what happens in a Christmas tree. When you're given a gift on your birthday, it is yours. You get it. It's intended for you. You're supposed to use it. And I was uh, remembering when I was thinking about this, I got this snow speeder from Empire Strikes Back when I was 11. And I just remember playing with that thing and I would not let my brother touch it. If we were playing Star Wars with all the various figurines, that one was always mine. No questions asked. It was mine. But that's not the way God gives gifts, actually, to us. That's not, that's not a charism. It might be more helpful to think of these gifts like what happens at a Christmas, on a Christmas tree. Gifts are put under a Christmas tree, but they're never intended for the tree, right? Things that have been placed under your care by God, under your shelter for your care and supervision, they're actually intended to be given to someone else. That the gift that you've received is not for you, but it's for those who are around you, who need that gift, who want that gift, who desire, maybe they don't even know that they desire that gift. We have been graced to give grace. We've been graced with a gift to then supply gifts to others. And you see that idea in a couple places. One of them is in Romans chapter 12. It's one of those places, those chunks of, of the Bible where, where Paul talks about spiritual gifts. 
And this is what he says. This is Romans chapter 12, just starting verse, just these three verses, four through six. Just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, charismata, according to the grace, Karin, given to each of us. We have been graced as a grace. In part, when we take on this name, Grace Commons, what we're saying is, is this understanding of grace is something we want to step into purposefully and personally. We have been offered and we have received grace now to offer to others. And over time, we want our spaces, our way of life, our hospitality, the warmth of our community to be a gift. To be a grace that is first sort of put under our stewardship and then extended out to others who need it. To help people discover and find out that they have a spiritual home before they even know that they need it. That they find themselves here because they're in youth ministry or they've come here for a concert or they've, they've come to, sh- you know, play some pickleball on a Tuesday afternoon. Because we've taken care of their kids in our preschool and they've had some interactions here with, with you and with staff. And what they discover here is a gift intended to be experienced by all. Because it's shared. We're grace commons. So this word uh, grace is used as a greeting and as a gift and then finally and significantly as salvation. This is probably the best one-word way to describe salvation that we could offer to ourselves or to the world. And that simply is grace. And what we'll be saying over and over and over again, both next week and I assume in the years to come, is, is there is a kind of a grace that God has already lavished on every single living human being. As a, as a gift of God's grace, we hold in common the ability to love, to care for others, to hold down a job, to appreciate hot chocolate and a fireplace on a cold, snowy day. These are all common graces, gifts from God that we um, had no control over to receive or not. They're just given to us. But there also is a kind of a grace that's utterly unique, and it needs a space to be able to discover it. There's a, there's a kind of a grace that is exceptional and spiritual and surprising and delightful and not always easily available without a space to discover it. There are a couple of different places where uh, in the New Testament what we see is this, this story of the gospel of God's grace is written in really clear words. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is one of those places. 
And I've said many times, when I, for the first time I discovered this and someone walked me through this, I, I've loved this passage as a way for us to understand the, the whole story of the gospel in, in one simple word, in one simple um, passage of scripture. It tells the whole narrative. If you need to read the whole Bible today, but you don't have time, you should just read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And what you'll get is a presentation of the whole biblical narrative and the hope and life and salvation of Jesus Christ. And as you read it, you're going to discover something that is sometimes hard to talk about. What you're going to discover, at least in Ephesians 2, is that the good news of salvation, the the good news of God's grace for you, actually begins in some bad news. Some troubling news. And I want to be really clear with you as we work our way through the meaning of the gospel and of grace. In more than one place, but certainly especially here in Ephesians 2, we see this diagnosis of the reality of humanity. We see God's diagnosis of what he sees when he gazes upon us. And in more than one place, but especially here, what it says is humanity is dead. That actually in light of what God has in store for us, we are dead. We are spiritually dead. Do you know that dead people can't do anything for themselves? That's the gospel, friends. We are spiritually dead. And when it comes to our death, there is nothing spiritually we can do for ourselves. But it also says not only are we dead, We're also enslaved. We find ourselves on a way and on a path that we can't escape from. And it's going to end up somewhere that we don't want to be. The word here in this passage is going to be wrath. Certain and eternal death. This is the troubling news of a human heart. That we are spiritually dead. That we are enslaved to a way that that we just keep on going the wrong direction. We keep on trying. We keep on going and walking in spiritual blindness. And we're going to end up in a place where we are condemned. We find ourselves knowing God's wrath. Ephesians 2 tells it like this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, there's enslaved to a way, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This is the uncomfortable story, friends. There's something that's happened that we cannot solve on our own. Something happened to our hearts and to our spirits that we cannot self-correct. It turns out that being a good person is not enough. I want to be really clear with you about that. If I can just say that again. Being a good person is not enough. 
Why? Why can't I just be a good person? Because, friends, you are dead and you are enslaved. And you can walk as a good person all the way to the wrong location. As a really good person who's kind and generous and loving, you can, even in the middle of all that, you can walk all the way to the place and end up in the wrong location. And this passage calls that location wrath. Because even if you're really kind and nice and enslaved, you're still dead. You might have biological life, but you don't have zoe, eternal, spiritual life. That is, that's bad news before the good news, friends. John Stott, um, sort of a a British theologian and pastor, said that is a, a radical disease that we cannot address, that requires a radical remedy. We have a a radical disease that requires a a radical remedy, and thankfully that's exactly what happens in Ephesians chapter 2 as it tries to encapsulate the story of God's great love. Let's keep on reading. But, take all that aside, all that stuff we just said, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. He breathed life into us, it says. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the one-word summary. I'm going to give you a five-word summary in a little bit, but this is the the one-word summary of the gospel. Are you ready? Grace. Grace. I think sometimes we have sort of this dual understanding that I I wish I could correct in my own heart because I know better, and I wish I could give away to you because we are the church together. There's two things that I think are true. One of those things is, is we sort of sneakily, way, way down deep in our heart, think, well, I'm, I'm better than that guy. I'm, I think I'm okay. When it comes to salvation, it's sort of like being chased by a bear. I don't have to be the best. I just have to be better than you. And I think I'm kind of okay. Of course God loves me. That seems so obvious. I'm lovable. I am the hero of my own story. And I deserve salvation. At the same time, I think oftentimes we think, you know, I think God's in some way kind of just like a curmudgeon. Kind of grumpily doing this salvation thing. As if actually uh, saving us is something that is um, something God would never actually truly want to do. As if the message of the gospel is that God came in the flesh sort of holding his nose the entire time. He doesn't really want to do any of it, but uh, he guesses he will. Sort of like changing those really awful diapers of your infants. You don't really want to, but I guess you feel like you have to. But friends, that's not the character of God. 
That is not the story of the gospel. That is not what we see in this passage. Instead, what we see simply is this in verse 7. God has done this, not begrudgingly, but in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. The character of God is overflowing with grace. And he offers us salvation, not begrudgingly, not because we deserve it, because we're dead, but because it's just who he is. It's overflowing. It's, it's the, the riches are incomparable. Nothing can measure up to the depth and the magnitude of God's love. That's the story. That's what we see in the scriptures, and that's what we see in this passage. And friends, that's what we want to proclaim with our name. Grace is a, is a greeting. It's a gift. It's salvation. And we want that news to be known and shared and embraced. Just in case we've missed it, Paul goes on in sort of this repetitive way. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Friends, what this passage describes is God's free and undeserved mercy for us. It describes his unmerited favor for us. It seeks to proclaim his unearned redemption for us. That's a story we want told more than any other. God has done it. In fact, friends, you might notice even our good works, did you notice? We didn't really even do those. While we were dead, God recreated us through salvation, through His grace. He's like, now, you, you know, now you're God's handiwork, and He's going to put you in the path to do good works that He's already planned for you. Even the things that we're doing now, even the things we've been talking about now, friends, are an expression of God's grace. It's what He did first. That's the story we want to tell over and over again. That this story of God's gift, God's greeting, and God's salvation is abundantly clear to us and to the watching world. That's our goal. Okay, as a wrap-up, <clears throat> you probably have seen all sorts of places, ads, um, Super Bowl ads even, the 5G network is coming. Raise your hand if you know anything about the 5G network. You just know it's coming even. Yeah. Supposedly it's going to be like this lightning fast, amazing thing. So um, I'm going to give you a way to summarize the gospel today. What we've been talking about today. That every time you see 5G on your phone, you just start thinking about the gospel. All right? 5Gs. Here they are. God. Guilt. Grace, gratitude, and glory. Friends, I want you to notice the way that I've tried to draw out the colors 
that everything about our life is surrounded and initiated by God. He is at the beginning and the middle and the end. We are surrounded by the activity of God. We are created by God. We are saved by His grace. We are resurrected by His glory and for His glory. So what do we do? We get to move from guilt to gratitude. And the more we understand the magnitude of His grace, the greater gratitude we can live into. Five G. It's not coming. It's here. I'm going to ask you to memorize it. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Yeah, you. All right. I'm going to say it, and you're going to sort of whisper along with me. See if you can remember the order. This is the story of the whole Bible and of this passage. And you. First word is God. Guilt. Grace, gratitude, and glory. Friends, I don't want to preach a name. I want to preach grace twice on Sundays, maybe three times. As we think about these five words as I conclude today, let me just ask you, In my own discipleship, there's a spot in these five words where I've been living flat, where I've ignored God's character, I've either underplayed or overplayed my guilt, I've made grace impossible to receive or too easy to attain. I've made a life of gratitude fake or overwhelmingly impossible. I've doubted the glory of God and His eternal purposes for me. Where's your flat spot in here, friends? We are invited by the grace of God to live this fully redeemed life. And yet I know in our humanity, we will always carry some doubt, some weakness, some broken habit that needs to be resubmitted to what? God's grace. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these men and women, boys and girls. As we think about this story of your grace, we pray, Lord, that you would be so clear with us that this story is not just a story that's out there, but it's a story that resides in our very heart. And it's a story that's not only mine, but it's ours. It's not only a story that's ours to hold for ourselves, but a story that we're intended like a gift to give to others. Lord, help us to receive your grace, to live with deep gratitude, confident of your coming glory. We thank you, and all God's people said,
Amen. Amen. Let's stand, friends, and let's.